This is the story of the biggest theft in history. The big steal of the resources of the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government. A Kremlin clique that runs the country like its own personal bank, a clique of bandits. It's also the story of how Russia is using every part of its state machinery in a war many of us don't even realize is taking place to subvert democracy worldwide. Today, battle lines are drawn between the two richest, most powerful men in Russia as President Vladimir Putin and Mikhail Khodorkovsky publicly clash. There were so many reasons to go after Khodorkovsky. He stood for transparency. He stood for efficiency. You can say that Khodorkovsky was the poster boy for everything that Putin really hates. I'm Gavin Esler, and in The Big Steel, we're telling the extraordinary story of how in one generation Russia went from communism to kleptocracy. At its heart, how the Russian government stole the country's biggest oil company, Yukos, from its shareholders and put the man at its helm in jail for 10 years. Mikhail Khodorkovsky was sentenced to nine years in prison for fraud and tax evasion. It's a conviction that raised eyebrows throughout much of the West because Khodorkovsky had been a longtime political rival of President Putin. The principal beneficiary of the big steal is Russia's president, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, and his behavior is ruthless. If we look at the spate of assassinations, and I'm not just talking about you know, the Skripals and Litvinenkos that we know about, but the, the Chechen fundraisers gunned down in, in Turkey and so forth. I mean, this is clearly not a man who has a problem with violence. It's 2003. Vladimir Putin is three years into his first term as Russia's president. At the same time, Khodorkovsky has transformed Yukos from a moribund Soviet non-enterprise into a successful company. He's continuing reformist ideas, perestroika and glasnost, restructuring and openness. Experienced oil managers from the West, plus management consultants McKinsey, are transforming the way Yukos is run. Western advisors, PwC, are brought in to create a transparent accounting system. International law firms advise on legal matters. Western standards are important for efficiency, but also because Khodorkovsky is eyeing deals with some of the biggest oil companies in the world, including ExxonMobil. And by now, he's Russia's richest man. President Putin's record by 2003 isn't so good. His presidency began with the Kursk submarine disaster. According to Russian naval authorities, the Oscar-class submarine the Kursk struck something Sunday night during exercises in the Barents Sea. The sub now lies deep under the icy Arctic waters. A precise depth is in question. But the head of Russia's Navy says getting the vessel and its sailors out is not likely. During a major Russian naval exercise in the Barents Sea in August 2000, a mixture of incompetence and callousness led to all 118 cursed crew members being killed. Putin was on holiday and remained there. He refused foreign assistance in rescue efforts. Two years later, in 2002, another disaster. A group of around 50 armed Chechens seized 850 hostages in a Moscow theatre. The siege ends in a bloodbath. 
200 hostages and 40 insurgents are killed. Putin's handling of both crises was the old Soviet style. He either hid and stayed silent, or denied there was a real and systemic problem. Meanwhile, there was a more serious challenge to his authority. A few dozen super-wealthy businessmen, oligarchs, were profoundly dissatisfied with what was happening inside the Kremlin. Some began openly to display political ambitions, and this was a challenge Putin couldn't ignore. He called a meeting and told the oligarchs he'd leave them and their businesses alone. But the deal was they had to stay out of politics, or else. Two oligarchs didn't toe the line, both media tycoons whose operations Putin saw as unhelpful. Vladimir Guzinski was jailed after his TV channel had launched an investigation into the 1999 apartment bombings in Moscow. The TV report included claims that Russian intelligence services had themselves planted the bombs. The other media tycoon, Boris Berezovsky, fled to the UK, where he received political asylum, but still feared for his life. I met and interviewed Berezovsky several times in London. He was always protected by smartly dressed, plainclothes security men who had large bulges under their suit jackets. Back in Moscow, a power play had begun. At stake was control of the Russian state. Putin couldn't jail all the wealthiest businessmen in his country, yet he needed to bring them to heel. The question was how. The answer came from the richest and most powerful of them all, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Khodorkovsky had, like many Russian businessmen, given money to politicians in the Russian parliament, the Duma, although he denied any personal political ambitions. Putin didn't believe it, and a confrontation was inevitable. It happened on the 19th of February 2003, live on Russian television. Khodorkovsky turned up with a PowerPoint presentation. He attacked in detail the widespread corruption and bribery that kept the Russian people poor in a potentially enormously rich country. As an example, he chose Rosneft, a small state-controlled oil company. Rosneft had used public money to buy a tiny player in the energy market and massively overpaid the owners. So where did all the money go? The allegation was that it went into the pockets of some powerful people in the Kremlin. Khodorkovsky's confrontation with Putin was a great bit of television theatre, but when we met up in London, I told him it was difficult to understand why such a clever businessman took such a reckless course. One of the most remarkable things I've seen in your story is the television footage of you with a group of businessmen and you were taking on Vladimir Putin. What on earth was going through your mind when you did that? So by 2003, 
the country as a whole, businesses in the country, started to feel that the corruption situation was becoming untenable. And it wasn't for any moral reasons that we found it untenable or intolerable anymore. It was just because the corruption was in the way of the proper development of our businesses. We were moving towards an IPO. We already had an independent board of directors. So for us, corruption was like a break on all our aspirations. It was really pushing us back. But we could see that in Putin's entourage there were people who were encouraging his corrupt aspirations and others who thought that there should be a different way of dealing things. So we thought, not just myself, but the entire union of industrialists and entrepreneurs, that Putin hadn't made his mind yet that he still didn't know which route to choose, either to make a step back and to have a redistribution of wealth favoring his own people, or to move forward, abandoning corruption and allowing not just his friends, but the rest of the people to earn good money in the market just because the market would then boom as a result. So we were sure that he hadn't made his mind up. So we decided that this was the moment to explain to Putin, just to kind of open his eyes to what the result, the consequences of the decisions he was making would be. I did understand how risky it was, but I realized it was a worthwhile risk to take, because had it gone on in the same manner, I would see no future for business in Russia. And some people in Putin's administration, in fact, sided up with us. So when I spoke at that meeting with Putin, I wasn't taking on Putin personally. I was speaking in favor of one choice against the other choice. And yes, it was a difficult situation because I had spoken harsh words in his face. It's interesting that those harsh words are absent from the YouTube recording that you have seen. So, for instance, I told him that according to the sociological survey we carried out, 80% of the population in Russia think that the majority of, of officials are corrupt. And 25% of the Russian population actually think that all Russian officials are corrupt, including yourself, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Do you really need this? I said to him. As it turned out, he had already made up his mind. And that decision was not just turn corruption into a tool for personal gain, but to make corruption into the backbone of the entire system of administration in the country. If you are not corrupt, you cannot be part of that system. That's quite striking because you were saying that corruption isn't just something that happens in Russia, it is Russia. It is the system of, the, of governing, of administering Russia. That's what corruption is, the system of administration. As an ordinary citizen of Russia, you can actually live your life without being corrupt. And, and, and you're not very likely you are not corrupt yourself, and you could probably do without being corrupt, with the exception of small bribes to the police. Yet, if you're part of the three million vast army of federal, regional and local officials, most likely you are corrupt. So perhaps you don't take bribes directly, but you would use your position in government at all the different levels to get some benefits for yourself. And of course, you totally understand that if you lose your loyalty to the regime, your acts as a corrupt official will put you in prison.
it's worth spelling out what Khodorkovsky had done. Russia's richest man and most successful entrepreneur, the head of one of the largest businesses in the world, had publicly confronted the former KGB colonel, now president of Russia, before a transfixed Russian TV audience. Russian viewers had never in their lives seen anything quite like it. I asked Mikhail Khodorkovsky if he'd any idea how badly things had gone. I did understand at that meeting that Putin's decision was not in our favor. And yet I didn't feel that the war had been lost. Yet. So I thought that there was a 70-30 percentage uh, likelihood of me ending in prison. 70% that I would be behind bars, but 30% that I could still win that game. And that proportion changed as time went on and creeping towards October. Unfortunately, in the wrong direction. But when the moment came when it became clear to me that I would not win that game, two significant events had happened by that time that were made it impossible for me to backtrack, to surrender and leave. Platon Lebedev's arrest was first. And Alexei Pichugin's arrest second. Observers of Russia's tortured politics are convinced Putin had laid plans for Khodorkovsky well before the made-for-TV drama. The Swedish economist and Russia expert Anders Asland. I think that uh, Putin was very deliberate from the beginning. Putin stands for two things, uh, KGB and organized crime. Uh, secret police and organized crime uh, to, uh, together. And that means power and money and uh, very little, uh, little else. There were so many reasons to go after Khodorkovsky. He wanted to build a private pipeline break the state uh, pipeline uh, company Transneft's uh, uh, monopoly and he wanted to sell Yukos to uh, uh, Chevron or, or Exxon. He had the negotiations with uh, both of them. Putin did not want uh, that big uh, uh, Western influence in, in the Russian economy. He stood for transparency, he stood for efficiency, everything that Putin really hates. So uh, you can say that uh, uh, Khodorkovsky was the uh, poster boy for every, uh, everything. In a way, Khodorkovsky was lucky. In communist times, he would have disappeared and been executed by firing squad. In Putin's Russia, things have a different choreography. There were signs Khodorkovsky was at risk of arrest, but he was free to travel. And as Asland invited him to Washington for a speaking engagement. Once in the USA, Khodorkovsky could easily have chosen exile there or in Britain, as generations of Russians had done in the past. Instead, he chose a different path. And as Asland takes up the story. Khodorkovsky was here and speaking on the 16th of October, 2003, and we had a big event at Carnegie Endowment that I organized, and Khodorkovsky made a splendid speech. The whole audience was stunned. 
he took questions uh, freely and standard question was how he would he dare to go back uh, to Russia after uh, this event. He did not criticize Putin by word. His whole message was, I believe in Russia and I want to improve uh, Russia. And uh, I sat down and uh, talked with him privately uh, and uh, I, I asked uh, him uh, how he really looked up on the situation. And he said, they are making so many mistakes that I don't understand how they can win. And I thought there were many people who said that in 1937, but I didn't uh, say it. He seemed then very idealistic. He also made a big uh, speech at the, the US-Russia Business uh, Council. So he was very forceful, very convincing, and he really had the whole Washington with him, but the White House didn't do a thing. On October the 25th, 2003, just over a week after his speaking engagement with Aslan in Washington, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was on his private jet on a Siberian airfield when it was refused permission to take off. Again, he could have escaped. He could have ordered the pilot to take off anyway, but chose not to do so. Moments later, armed police stormed the plane and Russia's richest man was arrested at gunpoint. I don't understand why you just didn't leave. That wasn't an easy question. For people who remained in the company, it was a matter of principle to see what the position the management would take, what position the management would take. That's what I thought at the time, and I still think now. When you're just a small... Uh, you know, member of staff in a large corporation, you cannot know what's going to happen to the corporation as a whole. And when the investigator from the office of the prosecutor calls you up and he's sitting there with all his regalia and tells you, you had no idea that you were working for a bunch of criminals, had you? And don't you see your whole management has, you know, emigrated? They all hid abroad. So the crimes they have committed, it is you who is going to pay for those crimes. That person would think, maybe they did commit crimes, indeed. And then the prosecutor gives you the document to sign and says, just sign this paper and you'll, go, you'll walk free. And then I will definitely go after that management, that corrupt management of yours. However, if you don't sign this paper, that means you are also criminally responsible. So they interrogated and also persecuted in one way or another several thousands of our staff in the company. Several thousand people. The year 2003 was a turning point and a brutal example of a centuries-old Russian political struggle. On one hand, those like Khodorkovsky wanted the motherland to face towards the West. On the other, those like Putin saw Russia as exceptional, unlike any other nation, carving out a unique path as the world's largest country, spanning 11 time zones all the way to the Far East. But unlike earlier struggles in Tsarist times in the 19th and 20th centuries, in 21st century Russia, what's at stake is not just Kremlin policies or the fate of 150 million Russians. The big prize, and the big steal, is an economy measured at four trillion dollars, and billions have already been siphoned off into private bank accounts of Kremlin cronies and Vladimir Putin himself. Of course, it didn't have to be like this. 
Pulitzer Prize-winning author Anne Applebaum and Professor Timothy Snyder have been following the fortunes of Russia for many years. Tim first. The whole story goes back to oligarchy. What do the Greeks say about oligarchy? The Greeks say democracy is impossible because oligarchs are going to come along and tell people a fancy story and get them to forget about their own best interests, right? Like that's been a problem from the beginning. And what Mr. Putin is doing is just a fancy globalized version of that. Right? And he's, he's got the money and the resources personally to yeah, be able to do that. Yeah, he's taking contemporary international politics and turning it into spectacle, right? You know, the proverbial bread and circus. He's turning it into spectacle for the Russian people. Here's Ukraine, here's Syria, whatever's happening, we're stopping the Western terrorists. That's what he's doing, and he's and he's done it, you know, with with some success. His his problem is the problem. You know, the virtue of oligarchy is that you always have enough money in your pocket to bribe this guy, bribe that person, bring this institution on board. But the problem is because all the money's in your pocket, eventually everything starts to seem frozen, and you know which it is in Russia. So Russia is like Italy, right? We look at Italy and we say, oh, Italy, that's a basket case. But you know, like, which would you rather have, the Italian economy or the Russian economy? The Italian economy is much, 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 much stronger and has a lot better companies than the Russian. It's not even close. Of course Russia could be richer, uh, and Putin knows Russia could be richer, but the things that Putin would have to do to make Russia richer would be would be risky for him. In other words, opening Russia more to foreign investment, integrating Russia more with the world, ensuring that Russia is less corrupt, devolving power from the center to the periphery. All of that could make Russia richer, but it would put at risk Putin's autocratic regime. Next time on The Big Steel, extraordinary scenes as Mikhail Khodorkovsky is put on trial in a cage. When you're a defendant in a criminal case in Russia, there is a 99.8% conviction rate. And so there is no presumption of innocence. And as part of that whole no presumption of innocence, they put the defendants in a cage, um, just because that's where you're going to end up afterwards. And so um, they put Mikhail Hordakovsky, the richest, most powerful, smartest oligarch in Russia, in a cage. And then they allowed the television cameras to come in and film him sitting in a cage. Now, imagine that you're the 17th richest oligarch. You flick on CNN, and there you see a guy far richer, far smarter, far more powerful than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? You don't want to sit in that cage yourself. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced by Martin Points Roberts at Fresh Air Production. Please make sure you subscribe to the series so you don't miss an episode. <laughs>